This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday to you. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day so far. Hey, uh, I'm back with a voice, somewhat. Kind of had a little bout with the old sinus flu, whatever we're calling it. Nightmare. Nothing worse than losing your uh, sinuses to a cold. Midsummer cold. Midsummer cold. It's 100 degrees outside. And then cold air. I have, I'm always having cold air blowing on me. It's kind of what I do. Well, that's just because you insist on your children fanning yeah. you constantly. And they do such a great job, but uh, I'm So back. are you overusing the air conditioning? Is that what you're saying? No, it's actually interesting. I have a – we have a ceiling fan in our our bedroom because our bedroom doesn't get as cool as the rest of the house. Right. It's just a neat little engineering feat that mm. they managed to do at our house. Plus the price you pay when you live on the fifth floor of your own home. Yeah. Too many levels. Too many levels. So I just have this fan on me all night, and I I don't know. Not that fans cause colds, but it's just cold air always blowing on me, and I always get a sore throat, I think, just because of cold air. I don't know. And then that causes infections, and I don't know. But it was ugly. It was ugly. But I'm here. Now, let's see how long I can last. Because the voice is like, it's a delicate instrument. And I feel like an opera singer that has to make it now through a three-hour tour. Tour. No, that was the— <laughs> Oh, that's Gilligan's That's album. Gilligan. Sorry. Yeah. We got a great show. Um, we're going to be talking with a musicologist. Mm. I think the most intriguing part of the entire show is the fact that there's people that are called musicologists. Right. And they're not just, you know, druggies that love a yeah. good song. It's not a made-up thing. Mm-mm. These Even are people that study— the data behind music. And now, more than ever, there's more data about how we listen to music. And it's manipulating us more than ever. Oh, yeah. Right. They're I, making a lot of money. After reading this article and some other things I've seen, just, you know, reporting and things, you you start to see, like, really is, do I think this is popular or do I think I think it's popular? And, you know? and what is it that you like about music? It used to be like a, they used to think you liked a genre. Right. But now, like, genres may be going away. You might just like to hear drums at a certain rate and rhythm uh-huh. and tonal quality, and you'll listen to those all day. You like it when people sing at a certain key yes. that hits whatever mm-hmm. mental resonance, and you want that, we want more of that. So some, some people want, like, their music to be on key, on pitch. I go, some don't care. When I go to uh, it's hmm. Pandora, yeah, right, and you put in a song you want to hear or an artist you want to hear. So I'll put in a band. And then every song they play yeah. is other songs that I already listened to. Oh, right? re- really? Yeah. Because they, like, know. they every, know. Every band, every single song, I go, oh, I like that one. I like that one. Then I'm like, well, I guess I have a type. You are a type. That was my thought. Yeah. But now after reading this. You have an algorithm. Though, I have too. an they algorithm. Have, they have an algorithm on you. They figured me out. And it's really simple. It's just a lot of screaming. Yeah. And lots uh, of rage. Lots of yeah. loud, like highest volume possible. Uh-huh. If I think it's deafening is the level. This Anything that's deafening is your kind of music. Mm. Is this Slim Whitman? Yeah, some might call this deafening, 
No. But others might call it soothing. In fact, I think this is part of your treatment to get you back into work today. Oh, yeah, I can feel it. It's lowering my heart rate. Explosive, if that's how the movie works. I'm calling you. There we go. (sighs) This was popular. It still is. Eh. I mean, there's like 80 people that can't get enough of this. I saw, it was years ago, but there was a 60 Minutes report. They talked to a musicologist probably yeah yeah but the guy talked to you was back in the day you had mozart mm-hmm. right highly complicated music right really popular yeah and he goes fast forward you know several hundred years you had the big band era oh yeah oh right? what a great era that not was. as complicated no lots of instruments lots yeah. of different sounds but kind of more i mean it, it sounded more complicated right and then he goes as you move through the 20th century the one thing he says is very apparent is that it becomes less complicated with more bass. Oh, yeah. And that's how our music is. Now we have more bass. Well, we also have... It's all about that bass. Yeah, that's what I heard. And, and he kept showing... Now, he was selecting you know, the music that fit the narrative he was trying to share, but you start seeing how our music starts yeah. to be simplified and it turns into bass. And now we have uh, certain popular groups that their entire music, is they sit at a computer. Oh, Totally. And no, so, yeah, I mean, there's that, no that in- making 20, 30, 40 million a year now, just what, sitting there. What Your they, son's one of those people, right? Not yet, not okay. yet, but he'd like to be someday. What they do is, is interesting. Huge. It takes talent yeah. to build that music, right? but it's not like an instrument. It's no. not a guitar. It's right. not, you know, you're not sitting well, there. I mean, and then you know. there's Miley Cyrus. Oh, yeah. Total train wreck, but beautiful I voice. Came like she came in and just wrecked it. She, by the way, did you see her with Jimmy Fallon in the subway? Yes, that was good. Fantastic. Yeah, she can sing. She's when you got hear her. pipes. Is this where they just have big, huge singers down in the subway and see if people will even notice? Yeah, and okay. it actually, it's, I think it's, I think it's a rat abatement technique. Is that it's, what it is? It's trying to get rats out of the subway, but. Um, it, I mean, it's awesome. She sets up. She's wearing a wig and she starts singing like an old. Country, I think it's an old country song. I think so, yeah. And uh, she killed it. She's great. Yeah. Boy. And Jimmy Fallon, did honestly, it's the first time I've seen Jimmy Fallon not quite know what to do. Right. He because did, he, she was carrying everything. Really? Yeah. And he, he could, just he could danced laugh. around. He couldn't laugh uncomfortably yeah, he at couldn't, everything. He, so. couldn't just, he couldn't just laugh her up. So she killed it. Anyway, it was really cool. So we'll, we'll get into... We'll get into celebrating music and uh, understanding how data is transforming the music industry. It's also interesting, too, how it's allowing us to track how music's actually being played now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we're breaking down the genres, which I think is super cool as well. Um, we'll get to all that fun. Plus, also, um, it's – I don't know if you heard about this. we got to talk about it. But Scaramucci, the mooch. The mooch. Gone. Yeah. We just talked about him yesterday on the show with – about being like With Joe Cannon. About being overwhelming. And it was embarrassing. I went home and my dad said, Scaramucci's out. I know. What? Yeah, that's why I didn't come in for that show. I yeah. had a feeling. You had a no. feeling something yeah, was going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. The mooch was going to get in trouble. But, uh, boy, things have changed. You bring in a four-star general and his first decision is to get rid of the mooch. Allegedly. 
Yeah, well, well, the four-star general. We're had, not exactly sure how it happened. It's but like he got rid of the mooch. I mean, the mooch there, is gone. Well, there's some people saying it's him. Other people saying that the president first kind of supported what he did. He thought it was yeah, funny yeah. in that interview with uh, the New Yorker. And then started seeing how nobody else thought it was funny. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, some of the media that usually is really supportive of Trump was not supportive of this choice. Did you see the news out that uh, General Kelly, what was it, what's his first name? General. John. John. General John Kelly. John Kelly, who's the new chief of staff for President Trump. He actually was angry about how Trump fired Comey. Yes. And so I mm. wonder if that's going to create a little... Uh, intrigue yeah i read up that was a i mean trump's still mad about comey yeah and still enjoys that he fired him the way he did i read a little a little about scaramucci he has had a quite eventful week because not only did he lose his job he had a baby and he got a divorce did he really yes was the baby mommy and the wife the same one he divorced yes his, wow. his, his baby he had a big week and he died. His son was born on Wednesday when he was with Trump at the Boy Scout Jamboree. He wasn't there. Well, I mean, they're getting a divorce, right? So well, that, that's been still, in the works for a while. They've been the separated sons. for a while. He sent a text, something like, congratulations. I hope all went well. Something like that. Congratulations, honey, on delivering Not our honey. child. They're getting a divorce. Oh, yeah, the right. article that I read made it sound like she maybe was induced purposely while he was gone so he couldn't be there. Oh, Wow. You, well, and plus, and plus he died. She was I don't interviewed. know if you heard the Scaramucci well, died according to the Harvard Law yeah. Alumni Directory. Whoa. And <laughs> now his estate is worth billions of dollars because that's as, how it works. You make all the money after yeah. you die. Now, Harvard apologized. They marked him as dead and then said, sorry, it's a mistake. Apparently, <laughs> the, the report of the we'll demise of 53-year-old Scaramucci was ill-timed. We'll fix it in five he years. He is not dead. When was the last time you accomplished that much in a week? Boy, in 11 days, not ever. I have never been that offensive. Uh, <laughs> what, led to three firings, I yeah, think, three, and yeah. then was fired. Yeah. His wife said, uh, I read a quote from her saying that the kind of the reason for the divorce had to do with um, there wasn't enough room for both of them and the ego in oh, the relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Well, and I heard, I mean, it's hard to, because he loves Trump so much. Yeah. Like, love loves him. A lot of love there. Six times he used the word love in like one interview. Uh, okay, so we'll get to all of that fun, plus uh, just the exciting news of a new chief of staff that might bring some discipline to the White House. Right, that, that's, that's totally... happened all the other times. But, the, but the, the well, I, but except, I don't know that you've ever had this. I mean, apparently, too, he's been given everybody reports through him. Everybody, right? even Ivanka. Sure, that's totally going to happen. She's going to go talk to somebody else before she talks to her dad. Yeah. And she's just down the hall. Sure. We'll see. But, I mean, maybe so maybe that is Ivanka and Jared Kushner's way of saying this is the last shot. Yeah, we'll see. If we can't get control of this president, <laughs> something's in trouble. So we'll get to all that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? So over the weekend, a dozen Alabama inmates cooked up a plot to hoodwink, as it says, a new employee at the Walker County Jail using peanut butter to trick the staffer into opening an alternate door over the weekend. Um, so there was a new guy. He was manning the switch, the switches that open and close the new guy, different doors in the jailhouse, and uh, they covered up a sign with peanut butter, like say it said twenty one, and then they covered up the two with peanut butter, so it said one something like that. Yeah, open door one, and he, he opened the door that led him all out 
of the jail, so 12 guys ran out the door. And they've caught 11 of them. It's always the new guy. It's always the new guy. Brother and peanut butter. So the, there's one guy still at large. They're, they're trying to grab him, but it was just funny. They said, they, uh, yeah, he, he went after the new guy. Imagine what he would have done if it was crunchy peanut butter. Oh, that would have have been been a disaster. Such a better story. Los Angeles reached an agreement Monday with international Olympic leaders that will open the way for the city to host the 2028 Summer Games while ceding the 2024 Games to Paris. Mm. Because this will be, what, the third time they've they've, uh, hosted the Games in 1932, 1984, and 2028. Now, because they took a second, they took a step back and Paris will take 2024... Then the uh, Olympic Committee is uh, could give them up to two billion dollars to help out with their efforts. Wow, are they giving away money? No, just to help with the Olympics. Okay, because yeah. I I need a loan. Seems uh, interesting, but yeah, you got an eleven year wait for the Olympics. So oh, go ahead and boy. set your clocks. Uh, having ended their title drought, the Chicago Cubs want their most notorious fan to share in their good fortune. The Cubs announced Monday they were giving a World Series ring to Steve Bartman. Who deflected a foul ball that may have landed the uh, in left fielder Moises a lose glove in Chicago's five outs from the World Series in 2003. Oh, you remember yeah, that guy? Yeah, that guy. He had a ball cap on, headphones, yeah. turtleneck, glasses, and his life was ruined because he reached out and touched a ball. But that they're was now in play pardoning still. him. They're giving him a World Series ring. Well, they only wow. they're only doing that because now they all have rings because yeah. they just won. So they give him a ring. Chicago, they beat Cleveland That's nice. last fall. Because his life has been ruined. The Cubs say they hope this provides closure on an unfortunate chapter. Bartman was actually quoted. He's been in hiding since twenty, you know, two thousand three, basically. Ooh. He's con- he, uh, he says he continues to be fully embraced by the organization. Bartman released a statement saying he is deeply moved and, and is sincerely grateful. My hope is that we can all learn from my experience to view sports as entertainment. Yeah, right, dude. And he went on doing. You know, can you see him at, at like a? a Bar party no. talking about, hey, look at my new, look at my championship ring. Yeah, no. Now, I, who are you again? Oh, I'm the guy that. Yeah. You remember me? He lives in Chicago. <laughs> There's been several reporters who have. I can't uh, believe he lives there. He they should have, have moved by now. They have found him, and he, they try to talk to him in parking garages, and he's like, oh, leave me alone. Runs and hides in his car. And Wasn't runs away. it? Was his last name Scaramucci? No, it was Bartman. Okay. But, uh, yeah, but he, I mean, if you think he's got the ball cap on yeah, yeah, and I the remember. headphones. I think he was listening to a podcast. And the, he's listening to the radio broadcast of the oh, game. The Matt Townsend now, show. He had all that stuff on. All he had to do is he takes off the hat, that's puts right. in some contacts, and disappears into a crowd because you have no that's idea right. what he looks like. Walk away. Except Walk his away. name. So I don't then, know. Uh, you change your name and then you. I don't think he's changed his name. I think he's... it was the turtleneck that gave it away because who wears a turtleneck who wears anymore? A turtleneck. But if you remember back then, one of the newspapers in Chicago actually published his address and phone number. Oh, that's, that's rude. rude. He said, go get him. That was uh. like the next day. Uh, Dutch police arrested five Romanian men suspected of stealing iPhones worth $590,000 in a dangerous heist on a moving truck. Mm. The five men, aged 33 to 43, allegedly stole the iPhones in a late-night raid a week ago, driving a modified van so close to de- the uh, delivery truck that one of the suspects was able to cla- uh, climb across the van's hood and break into the truck while it was moving. Whoa. So the suspects then passed boxes of the iPhones back to the van as they cut uh, a hole through the roof of the van. So they're, he's in the back, and he's just kind of tossing to the guy standing there, and he's dropping him in the van. Oh, my heavens. And uh, the, the police thought this would never have happened. They said, this is ridiculous. No one is going to do a heist as the vehicles are moving. Now they're rethinking Wrong. This, this is totally out of Fast and the Furious. 
I don't know if they've done this yet, but well, now they've got an idea. I think it's the premise for part that'll, nine. Yeah, that'll be part nine. Hold on, have they had eight? Yeah. Was it good? Uh, I didn't see it. Was it fast? I've seen the first one. There was and a submarine. Part of part five. Was there? Was was it furious? Er. Er. Uh, there was an eight in the title, and it was the fate mm. of the furious. This is true. This is intense. Yeah. Wow. So. Uh, I guess is it going to be harder to find an iPhone now? No. Okay. They make millions. They still yeah, they'll be fine. A few. It wasn't a big deal. I mean, it's just a little heist. Maybe in the Netherlands it'll be a little difficult, but yeah. the rest of the world we're fine. Yeah. So we're not in the Netherlands, so it's fine. Too bad for you guys. <laughs> not to be rude. Hey, got uh, a lot to talk about. Up next, we're going to be talking with Brian Moon about how data is transforming the music industry. He's a full-blown musicologist. Right now, how many times did you have a friend in high school say, "I'm going to be a musicologist someday"? He mix uh, he mixes music. He mixes music and studies it in depth. As we are going to continue the journey straight ahead, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see and be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, how we listen to music is changing the industry. App subscriptions like Spotify, online radio like Pandora, and even our internet searches use big data to figure out what drives our music taste. Or is it just that companies use the big data to influence what we listen to and what we enjoy? So who's leading the music choices uh, today? We'll get into that. Our, here to answer a few questions about it is Dr. Brian Moon. He's an assistant professor at the Fred Fox School of Music, where he is the coordinator of music and general studies at the University of Arizona and is also a musicologist. Dr. Brian Moon, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, it's great to great to talk to you. Now, how cool are you? You have the job every teenage kid wants to have, a musicologist. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, uh, I kind of came to popular music um, sideways. I, a lot of, I, I wasn't um, originally setting out to be a pop and rock uh, scholar. I, I just stepped into it because I kept teaching pop and rock. So that's, but you've, yeah, uh, now, now you're like, I'm a musicologist. Hey, this yeah, is, yeah, um, I, this is such a crazy thing because I, I have a son that, uh, actually makes money on Spotify and, you know, he's, he, he's actually out on an LDS mission, but he, you know, is able to bring home six or $700 a month right now because he puts, oh, he puts some, um, some what are they called uh covers some music covers out on spotify and some of them have become kind of popular but it's crazy that a 20 year old kid can make music that quickly on a system like spotify talk to us about how the music industry is changing and uh and how it's going big data well uh so you're you've kind of zeroed right in on on a on a major shift that um so on, on terrestrial radio, on, on traditional sort of broadcast radio, um, there uh, your son wouldn't be making money actually, right? Uh, because there's no there's no performance right for for most radio stations. Um, still, there's just a, a recording or a mechanical right and a and a musical work or the right of the composer of the original song. But for streaming radio, um, there's also a performance rate. So the musicians involved, um, like your son, get 
paid as well. Um, similarly on, on YouTube and on um, and other services that stream. So there's there's a, and that's a tremendous shift, but it also means that that there's the possibility for people to make a living at music that might not have been able to make mm. a living at music, um, you know, uh, 20, 20 years or so ago. Um, the um, the pot the the nice thing about about this shift and and the one thing that that is uh, gives me a lot of hope is is that there's the possibility that more and more people can still maintain and and create some space for themselves within broadly within music by by doing things like what your son's doing so it's it really is a it's an amazing thing because too I, I the way I see it working on Spotify and this is can help us I guess get more into the discussion about the data is like they they can put somebody like Ed Sheeran a really big uh a really big singer popular has a lot mm-hmm. of followers but my son might play music similar to Ed Sheeran and so they'll play Ed Sheeran and then one song they'll play would be my son's song because it tends to follow some of the parameters of Ed Sheeran's music. So now it's almost like you don't even need to be you don't even need to love a genre of music. You don't even need to necessarily love one musician. The these these systems and and these sites now can identify the tonal quality, the bass beat, the the drum beat the the volume um, and and find music that exactly meets what you love. Yeah, the um, uh, and Pandora really drove that that concept uh, and the and the sort of computer algorithms behind Pandora uh, begin this you know before uh, before some of the other companies. Um, the idea of a uh, was originally called a musical footprint that every recording would be distinct and therefore would have traits in it that could be parsed out and that you could then, um, or sorry, the musical genome was, was Pandora. Uh, uh, fingerprint was Shazam. I got early in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. For, uh, but, uh, um, uh, but Pandora began to, to play with this idea of, of um, identifying and breaking each song into over 300 little small parts so that if you liked 80% of, of song A, chances are you were going to like song B, C, and D, and, and that uh, system has only gotten better over time. And so then everyone has, has tried to find that predictive, um, predictive way of, of um, you know, helping people find new things. And yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've got a, a couple of friends that, are, um, that have, have made some, had some success because they, they're not, you know, they're not the Lumineers. They're not the, um, you know, a, a large group, but they, they have a sound, a local band that has a sound that's just slightly like that, and, and they find new audiences that way, not millions and millions of new new audiences, but they find tens of thousands and enough streams to, to help them make a living. So, How is this different than the way it used to be done, Brian? Is it – are we being led now um, – more by this data, or is the is the industry just responding to the data? You know, it's it's a uh, there's still a possibility or a little of both, and and um, and so what I mean by that is is that um, terrestrial radio is still the heart of of where the music industry uh, and where stars can make money, and so they're they're well. Let me let, I guess let me step back. Um, in, in the 1980s, there were 25 artists that drove about 
approximately half of the domestic music industry's profits, a Mm. really small group. And part of that was because that small group, um, which you could probably come up with a list, you know, just off off the top of your head, uh, that small group was played the most on MTV and played the most on radio. And they dominated and uh, and therefore had the biggest record sales. And there's a sense that there's a little of that today. Um, you know, Taylor Swift, um, Drake, and 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 Adele, and and uh, Ed Sheeran, a handful of others, um, really do dominate radio. And because of that, there, you know, the the uh, there's this smaller smaller group of of people that are just really. Um, you know, earning earning a lot, and so there's a sense that it's almost cyclical in that that regard. It's kind of casting back to the '80s, um, and and if you go further back, I mean, there's a sort of that kind of broadly that idea happens where there's a few megastars and then and then uh, um, a lot of smaller stars. But but the smaller stars back in the '80s wouldn't have been able to kind of break through and 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 find that. You know that uh, day job version of of being a musician that the internet is now allowing, and um, so uh, so in that sense, um, and then in terms of how the the industry is leading us, the the radio stations still have programming managers. Uh, in fact, now um, I guess terrestrial radio stations. Are, or when I say that, I'm just talking about the radio stations that are built. To have their you know their um, signal built from a tower in the ground, they're um, they are still finding their music based on what they think is going to work, and what they think is going to work is now informed by data that mm. that um, they they test it. They they uh, in fact when you're trying to break a new artist now, you compile data that. Um, Played on this college radio station, and that was jammed 15 times in the, you know, in the first first time, and then 10,000 the next spin, and 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 you get whatever whatever information you can to prove that uh, that this person's going to succeed, um, that this is a trending topic on on Twitter when, you know, after after this commercial played, or whatever way that you can convince people that this is a song that is going to catch people's attention. Um, that's how you break it onto terrestrial radio, and once it plays on terrestrial radio, then it um, it stays there. Uh, and and also to some extent, um, the industry has always the, has always had a vested interest in cycling songs off. So the you know the best song of today, three months from now, it would be best for the industry if there was a new best song, if mm. there was something else that they could sell. Um, what the data is beginning to, is, to suggest is that we, you know, can kind of listen to a song for a little bit longer than than the industry kind of expects. That that we'll keep listening for a while, and uh, keeps us going back to playing the same song and you know yeah. keeping that. Plus, going. other ways like I've, we now have YouTube. You now have mm-hmm. social media. You have Shazam, so you can now, anytime you're hearing anything, you can, uh, you know, in your radio or wherever you are, you can direct your phone to Shazam. Click the Shazam button and find yeah. out exactly what song is playing, and that eventually affects, I guess, prioritization or or popularity. You've got Spotify. You've got iTunes. I mean, it used to be it seemed like people would have to put out an album. Um, but now you can just put out one song or three songs, and and yeah. those will sell like crazy. 
Yeah, and that's and artists are, uh, have begun to realize that and are releasing uh, uh, releasing songs, you know, individually and one at a time, and and uh, and and are beginning to realize that the record labels aren't even as important as they used to be. Um, Chance the rapper, you know, didn't sign with a record label because he didn't he uh, created his success through streaming media and through online um, services and. And the the old ways of so the the record industry was built on this idea that in order to pay for enough albums to be in all of the stores at one time, it cost too much money for an individual to hmm. to figure out. And so they funded that that side of it. They would make sure that the CDs were you know, the CDs or the LPs were going to be in all of the stores on the same day. Um, a, a huge undertaking, but now stores are less and less important in, in that transaction, and it's very easy for um, a couple of handful of, of online companies to ensure that your record is going to be on iTunes and Spotify and Pandora and yeah. all of those places for a small fee, so that uh, that uh, you know that most most people, if they are, are thoughtful, can get their their song out there it is amazing and then too they if you already have 20 million followers on social media you've already got your your audience right there just post it on your social media hey we just released a new whatever interesting stuff we're speaking with dr brian moon who is an assistant professor at the fred fox school of music and is also a coordinator of music and general studies at the university of arizona he is a musicologist walking us through the new world of uh music data and how data is driving the industry up next we'll continue the discussion also try to figure out what it means for the rest of us are we going to get more of what we want uh in an easier more accessible way are we going to be pushed more of what we maybe don't want to be listening to all up next right here on the matt townsend show on sirius xm 143 byu radio Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Brian Moon. Brian is a musicologist who specializes in America's music and is currently an assistant professor at the Fred Fox School of Music, where he is the coordinator of music and general studies at the University of Arizona. And uh, he's also affiliated with the University of Arizona's General Education Academy. And, Brian, we appreciate you. Thank you for your time. Yes, uh, my pleasure. And we know it's early well, there in Arizona. We uh, woke you up a bit, probably. Uh, well, no, yeah. Poor guy, expecting it a little a little later. Um, Brian, help me understand, because data, it's all about data, and they used to have the charts, right? They used to have, they used to have the numbers. They used to know how many people were listening, um, because it was all being run through kind of the terrestrial radio world. Is talk about what's happening though, and what's the difference, like with how social media now influences music and and um, other sources of data. Is it is it changing? Do you sense the future of how we will be purchasing and and being drawn to music in the future? In in a sense, yes. The, so the one of the the history of the charts in America um, is a history of trying to make something that seems objective and that stands 
you know, as if it is pure data, but has always needed to be approximated. And, and over time, uh, it's become more and more specific. Um, uh, uh, it wasn't until the early 90s that that the charts began to incorporate information like sales data. And when it did, it suddenly changed the charts tremendously. That uh, Suddenly country music and hip-hop music began to dominate the charts because that's what people bought. Um, and, and the sort of more subjective ways that the charts were sort of being made to turn over uh, weren't capturing that. Um, increasingly, data is... is driving the charts and and um and yet it's still changing it's only been since january that pandora uh streams have been a part of the hot 100 you know so the most popular song um, in america in 2016 didn't account for pandora at all hmm. and, and so as as these new uh, pieces of information are coming into it it's going to continue to make people and and in, in that the hot 100 is also what drives what plays on your you know, on your car radio, if you don't, if you're not lucky enough to have a serious, you know, serious station, um, the so so information and and that information is beginning to shape what we think is popular. There there are new charts that you you mentioned social media. The Billboard magazine now charts a social 50, um, the top 50 trending artists on various social media platforms on Twitter, on Facebook, on, on um, Instagram, and, and trying to incorporate that into, you know, so is, is Miley Cyrus the, or Justin Bieber. And, and in some ways, artists now are, are um, enjoying being able to, you know, because they can, they can create movement on that chart themselves just from, um, you know, from a silly tweet or a, or, or a, a trending topic or, or being a part of something. So um, all of these things are beginning to shape popularity, and that then in turn feeds what what plays and, and what gets the most exposure. And and so to some extent, um, what what we hear is is driven by all of this. Now at the same time, you know we um, we we like to think and 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 that it's purely our taste that is the, and the the most successful thing is the thing that is going to receive the most exposure um there's that's still a there, there are still gatekeepers in the system um but those gatekeepers are becoming less effective because if we you know if we like a uh, a really interesting new cover of a of an existing song and and spotify or pandora or um, a service learns that uh, or or we just become good at finding that for ourselves on the internet then, then we're going to discover your son or, or whomever. We're going to we're going to find ways to find to find to find this. Um, the in the 1990s, the laws that governed how many radio stations uh, an individual could own changed, and uh, and suddenly um, a few companies owned many of the radio stations in America, and and and, uh, and even to this day, many many radio stations are owned by a handful of companies. And originally, people thought, "Oh, that's just going to dis- all the music's going to become the same, and it's not going to have any diversity." And um, and yet, at the same time, the internet happened, <laughs> and that and that has constantly meant that the next new thing is out there, even if um, even if only a small group of people found it. And um, yeah, and and so it's it keeps some turnover.
It's, I, I kind of danced around your question a little no, bit. No, that's all right. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's just such a different world. And, I mean, it used to be the big thing was get the label, you know, get the big name behind you. The big label would market you, publicize you. Um, but And we see a lot of it uh, because kind of Utah is one of the, I don't know, just a, a great creator of um, YouTube personalities. And so now it's kind of you can build your own audience. Uh, you don't need to even go through the big labels. But it's interesting that once you've accumulated two or three million subscribers on YouTube, all of a sudden the big labels look at you. So it might even yeah. be easier to just accumulate your database first, then let the labels find you. Um, or like a guy, I don't know if you know, um, and I can't remember his name, uh, but he's he his he, his brand is sleeping at last. His name is Ryan something, but um, he, yeah, I, he, I, he I, I kind of know who you're talking about. He's he's just he's just a really humble guy that puts together great music. But I think he's even he even just likes the more simple life where I'll just kind of make my money online. And he's yeah. he's he's had some music played in some uh, in some really big. Ryan O'Neill is his name yeah. from Sleeping at Last. And, I mean, he's had music played in uh, some really big-name movies, but he he really kind of, I think, would rather just be a dad and a husband. Uh-huh. And I guess now you can almost carve out this niche for whatever you want in this industry. That I, I remember um, back in 2001 or two that, that I began to discover people like that, people that – we're fine not being the multi-millionaire, like, you know, huge star that had to be in stadiums a uh, hundred nights a year. They, they were just, they were beginning to realize that they could create a, a life for themselves by generating online content in a way that, that generated an audience. And, and, uh, and it's, it's not that that's an easy, you know, no. it's, a, it's an eight hour, 40 hour a week, eight hour a day, 40 hour a week job of, you know, your job is writing songs and producing new content, but, but, um, it's, it is possible. And, uh, so that, that's the, that's the sort of optimistic and positive side of, of, um, of all of these changes is that it does create a little space for, for people to find an audience. It doesn't make, it doesn't make it easier, but, no. but it is, it is, you know, it's a possibility, a, a talented musician that, um, and 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 as 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 you mentioned that you know the possibility that you can have a life that is not the pop star rock star life that you can have a, a life that yeah that's a it, that's one of the more exciting things I think about this in terms of I just I I like that there is more space out there it's just that that space is um you know it's it's it, it does it, it it's there is something to say about the live performance and seeing the person and, and you know. Yeah. No, t- totally. Tours are now, t- tours are now are often using this kind of information. I, so I, I have some artists that I really enjoy and I, and, uh, and I'm aware that sometimes I'm, I'm the one fan of the artist, you know, in the town. And so the artist doesn't come through the town very often because they know while all of the Facebook likes are not from Southern Arizona, uh, where the, where Tucson and the university of Arizona is. So, they're not going to send their artist on a tour through Southern Arizona. They're going to send it through, you know, through um, uh, Provost or, yeah. or wherever. They're going to they're going to send it to where there's a concentration of fans, and then they're going to book clubs 
or, or venues based on the size of that. The uh, data is, is driving that part of the that's, industry as well. That's true. I guess you, yeah, you don't have the tour that just kind of stops in every town anymore. Now they're so efficient, they know exactly what town to stop in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if, there's a, if there are um, 50,000 Instagram followers in, in Phoenix uh, and, and 5,000 in Tucson, then they're going to put on a big show in Phoenix. And, and um, it, it, that, so that, that kind of information is, is, um, is another side of the data. And, and companies are now managing data, trying to figure out how this, uh, how this, how, how you can take information that's out there and turn it into ways to make decisions based more efficiently, more, you know, and so, mm. uh, so do, it's a, it's a, do you sense this is an end to kind of terrestrial radio, you know, a dominance over the music world? What, you know, the, and the, the money still is in, is in the, in the terrestrial radio, um, I uh, I know that um, I believe I believe it was earlier this year that uh, the committee that 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 deals with copyright brought up the performance right on terrestrial radio once more. It comes up about every you know uh, at the beginning of every presidential administration, regardless of who's in the White House, uh, it pops up. And so I the, the the most of the money is still in terrestrial radio, and, and that's because and and particularly now that that fewer companies own more of the stations. Um, so while one stream on Spotify, you know, generates 0.003 of a penny, um, the uh, you can get three cents per stream on a radio. And, and, and if you're playing on 500 radio stations, you're going to, that that's going to add up a lot faster. And so the, the, the radio stations are still where the, the money is, um, but as as uh, smart, you know, as our radio and our car get smarter, and are more likely to be internet equipped, and we can get away from from that, and we can begin to stream shows like your your uh, radio show and, and other things in our car easily. I I don't know. I'm, it, it'll be interesting. It's it's a. I I don't I don't want to uh, I don't know enough to say what's what radio what that kind of radio is going to be in another 20 years, but it's not, I, I'm not looking to put my retirement yeah. accounts in it yet. Um, but it will change the revenue model. I mean, it's a different revenue model online and I, I it, which is interesting because after Napster, you know, it seemed like this was turning the entire industry upside down. And now it seems like the industry's learning other ways to make yeah. a lot of money on their music. Yeah, and well, and and I mean, and also the industry is much smaller. It was a, it was uh, even though last year, twenty sixteen, was the first year that the industry grew, you know, sort of began to show growth again. Uh, that was because it had shrunk so much, and mm. and and it between you know two thousand and and two thousand. Uh, I think it was about nine or ten. It was just getting. It, it's significantly smaller. Um, and, and yet there are still so uh, people for a long time, people thought that the that the album sales records that were from the from the night, you know, the 20th century, that they were going to stand forever because albums weren't going to sell that way. And then you have Adele and Taylor Swift and, mm-hmm. and others that that 
are actually still breaking some of those. And, um, and that suggests that there is, that there is still the space for a few stars to really gain an enormous amount of exposure. And, and the way that you do that is, is often through traditional radio stations. So yeah. it's, um, it's it, there, there are bits of, of the old models that are still in the new. Yeah. No, Brian, I think it's fascinating. And it's great work that you're doing, helping us understand a little bit better what's going on with the data in music and what's behind it. We appreciate your time and keep up your great work there at the University of Arizona. Uh, Brian Moon is his name. He's a musicologist studying America's music. Up next, we'll continue the journey, uh, give you more insight, more ideas, more information to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, it, nothing is more constant than change, right? So you, there is one thing that is more constant than even the fact that life is going to change, and that is the fact that there are principles that you can lead your life by to create healthy change. And, uh, again, I've seen it. I've seen the music industry um, single-handedly change my son that had a little anxiety, a little uh, social anxiety, and he was able to, in his own room, on his own computer, in his own way, build content that was marketable. It actually created a career for him. He knows how to edit video and audio and sound. He knows how to post stuff on YouTube. He's had some of his things on YouTube reach millions of people, and and he's able to get subscribers. He understands the industry. And it's become even better for him than a job internship. He's been able to meet people, and his self-esteem grows, plus his pocketbook grows. Who would have thought that you don't need a degree, you don't need millions of dollars of equipment, you don't even need a major backing from an agent, you just need a few connections, and boy, it's, it seems to be leveling out the playing field. And for this father, it's, it's a pretty hopeful thing. Hopefully, we all can see the benefits of it. And the ability to control the type of music that comes into our home, it might even be a little easier and a little harder when it comes to the complexity of this uh, of technology as well. Anyway, giving you some insight, some hope there. Up next, we've got a whole other hour of fun, interesting stuff. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you live a healthier, happier life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Jeffrey Simpson and Terry South. The gang's all here, folks, and we are locked and loaded Doing what we can on this program to help you get uh, the information, the tools you need to live a healthier life. Today, no exception, Dr. Frank Ninavaji, our psychiatrist from Yale University uh, and Yale Med School, he is going to he's going to walk us through ADHD. Apparently, he thinks we you know we could benefit from a better diagnosis. 
And as Stephen Wright likes to say, he has HD ADHD. Ooh, high def ADHD. It's uh, a lot of people, like I think 5% of our kids are now being diagnosed with it. But interestingly, in in Great Britain, only 3%. Really? Are being diagnosed there. Well, so they have it, that socialized healthcare thing. Yeah, too, so do they so. do it better or worse nah. than us? Are we just overdiagnosing? Oh. I think Dr. Ninavaji is thinking we might be. It's a very complicated diagnosis. And so he's, and by the way, he's a very complicated man. He is probably the single smartest human being I know. Is there an argument for we have a bunch of pills and we have to give them to somebody? Yeah. So that might be the argument. But. It works. So when you – if you have pills that work and it helps somebody focus and pay attention, that's better than them maybe growing into low self-esteem, oh. truancy issues, hating school and never you know doing anything. But if they don't need to be diagnosed with and given meds but instead they just need to learn to, to focus – and to have a plan, and they need to maybe be taught differently. Are those the side effects of the pills? Like your kid will love school? You're actually, one of the side effects is they can actually focus. Oh. I think Terry brings up a good point, though. Either we give them to responsible people, or they're going to end up on the streets. Well, yeah. You guys sound like drug dealers. Hmm. Have, have you been... Is there something I missed yesterday when I was gone that you guys no. are now so pro? Oh, no. I think we just, we've just we watched similar TV shows, so we kind of know oh, how yeah. this works. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, because I was sick all weekend. So we, we speculated watched, on which shows you watched, watched on Netflix. I watched an entire series, and I will, let, I will fill you in off air. Sweet Valley High? <laughs> no. Oh. But that just made my Pretty turn. Little Liars? No. No. Hmm. no. Nashville? Oh, my heavens. How did you know? Nashville. How did you guess? <laughs> I love me some Nashville. Dr. Frank Ninavaji, he'll be with us talking about ADHD and uh, and because it really is maybe three different diagnoses or more that we should be paying attention to. And some of them might be better served with meds like the, my boys want to do here. And others uh, might be better served with just better education. Um, we'll, we'll get to all of that straight ahead on, on uh, did ADHD. You, did you finish Gilmore Girls finally? Or? Oh, my heavens. I've never cried more. Oh, well, Kleenex says bless you. You know, I can't watch Gilmore Girls either for some reason. Yeah, I can't either. But I love Downton Abbey. Oh, yeah. What do you mean, yeah? I did, there's there's intrigue on Downton Abbey. I loved it. Like, all of a sudden, you care so much that mm-hmm. the housekeeper was rude to the cook. Yeah. Like, that cook did not deserve that. No, right, exactly. Like, treat him with respect. By the way, um, I realize that sometimes I'll watch a Netflix series that really brings me down. Yeah. And when I, start, a few of those. when I start to fall into too deep of a funk, I found a way out, which is what, who I call – he's not a real doctor, but I call him Dr. Bob Ross. Oh. Oh, right. Painting with Dr. Bob Ross. Which painting? He's not a doctor, but painting with Bob Ross, and he just makes me happy again. I thought you were just going to say that you simply turned off the TV. Oh, no, no, no. no. Oh, okay. No. Read a book, learned a skill, mm. walked outside in the sunshine. No, Talked to your children. Just more TV. I, when I say I'm watching Bob Ross, some of my kids will gather around. Some of them. They like it. It's mm. a very calming family activity. And we talk about colors and contrasts and that there are no mistakes. Just you We'll can, make that a bird. It's just a chance. That's just another chance to learn. This is never, ever overlook a chance to learn. Wow. A learning experience. That's Dr. Bob Ross. That's good.
Love that guy. Mm. Oh, I want to be Bob Ross when I grow up. Well, you've got a few years. And you need more hair. I totally do. And you need a huge, uh, what are those? Uh, palette. Palette. Yes. Ah, He's just amazing. And I keep thinking, I could do it. I really know inside of me, I have the gifts to do that. But I, I don't, I'm not in a position to start trying to grow other gifts yet. Well, mm. start training that afro. Yeah. You have to tease it more. I know. I don't know. It's, I'm afraid if I tease my hair too much, I might lose it. Just, I'm trying to keep it all home. Understood. We've got uh, that uh, straight ahead, plus crazy headlines as well. I mean, we've got so much to cover, so we'll get to the empty news. And uh, we've got the throwdown. Um, Pluto is taking on uh, this mass. What are we calling it? Just a mass? Of... I think we're just calling it the mysterious mass. There's a mysterious mass out near Pluto. He's, he's basically challenged it to a duel fight or a cage fight. And Pluto and our show is feels it. like if he wins, then he can reclaim his planetary status. But mm. it was still never confirmed as to whether the IAU promised him anything. Well, I'm pretty sure he's not going to return to a planetary status. He's a dwarf planet. Don't don't let him. I mean, don't make him lose hope. Okay, but but so he's having the match, and we're sponsoring it. So today we'll also have to be we'll have to play the trailer. What do they call this? It the was promo part of, piece. It was part of our agreement with him coming on to do the interview last week. Yeah, we didn't really want to, but mm. yeah, we're not into promoting violence like interplanetary it's, violence. It's sport. Yeah, it's a big ticket, huge, huge. Uh, okay, so we'll get to that fun straight ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Tropical storm Emily weakened to a tropical depression Monday afternoon as it slogged eastward across the Florida Peninsula, spreading drenching rains, causing power outages, and leaving two fishermen to be rescued from Tampa Bay. The National Hurricane Center said Emily made landfall late Monday on Florida's Gulf Coast south of Tampa Bay and began moving east to the Atlantic coast. Emily spent only a few hours as a tropical storm losing strength as it marched inland. No injuries have been reported, although two fishermen were rescued in Tampa uh, from Tampa Bay when they, when they were clinging to a channel marker light, so a buoy, basically, after their boat flipped. Oh, boy. So they're just hanging out, and they went out just and got them. floating. Uh, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Netflix, along with their telecom industry foes, have not committed to sending their chief executives to testify before uh, U.S. Congress in September. On the future of net neutrality, not a single one of those companies told the powerful House Energy and Commerce Committee, which is convening the hearing, that they would dispatch their leaders to Washington in the coming weeks, even at a time when the Trump administration is preparing to kill the open Internet rules currently on the government's books. The panel initially asked those four tech giants, as well as AT&T, Charter, Comcast, and Verizon, to indicate their plans for the hearing by July 31st. For now, though, the committee said they were going to extend the deadline. Boy. So, so if you you set a meeting, you ask for all these people to show up, and then no one responds. What are you supposed to do? Do, no, you, do no, you have a meeting? No one RSVP'd for this. Well, then I would assume there's no meeting. But they're extending the deadline, so we'll see what happens. Uh, okay. Uh, bad news for millennials once again. They have passed baby boomers as the biggest living generation in the United States, according to the numbers from the U.S. Census Bureau. Really? They are seventy-five point four million strong, compared to seventy-four point nine million baby boomers. 
Boy. Immigration is counting to the upshift in numbers as well as the old age of baby boomers who have now been uh, passed for the first time. So Unbelievable. So somebody <clears throat> is even stronger than the baby boomer, the, the millennial. Yeah, except the, the millennials disinterested in most things, it seems. So yeah. we'll still hear from the baby boomers quite a bit. Right. Well, and the, and the millennials, um, they're not as old as the baby boomers. So right. they've got years to mess things up. Right. And they're not. You're a millennial. There you go. They've got their own theme song now. It's true. We were talking about YouTube a little bit last hour. University of Central Florida kicker Donald De La Hay has made the decision to give up football rather than give up making advertising money from YouTube videos that he makes. The university released a statement Monday saying that De La Hay did not accept the conditions of a waiver received from the NCAA that has been ruled in uh, he's been ruled ineligible to compete. Basically, the NCAA said you can make the videos, but you can't get paid. Holy cow! But he's got several videos uh, with fifty thousand or more views on those, and he does get some money from that. When you're in college, every little bit but helps. But this is the, this is the NCAA saying the only people that can make money on you is us. Yeah, it says he's a we're mar- the only one. He's a marketing major, made several videos, some depicting his everyday routine, some that dealt with his experience on the football team. Yeah. So he's getting exposure that way. The NCAA said no, and he goes, ah, "I won't play football." He played 13 games last season. He was a kickoff specialist, so he was out there. But what else? Whatever. whatever. Moving on. Interesting. This is gets into the whole thing we talk about all the time about should these players be made professional? Right. They're getting paid. They're getting schooling. They're getting food. They get clothes. You know, they get free tutoring. And now you can't post a video on YouTube that's popular. Yeah. That you'll get compensated for. Unless supposedly the university could get paid through doing it. Well, that's what the, the – con- when you sign your scholarship paperwork, it says that they get to make money off you. And you don't. Unbelievable. But, but you're getting a you're getting a education. Are you? That's what they say. That's yeah, kind of the selling point. Are you? Finally, this study out of the UK. One in eight UK young people have never seen a cow in real life. Real, real, a one cow. a cow. One in eight young people, meaning under eighteen, in the United Kingdom, have never seen a cow. Well, do they not like look out when they're driving on the train to nowhere? Well, because while they may have spotted a cow on TV, twelve percent of the eighteen to twenty-four year olds are so unfamiliar with the countryside that they have never seen cattle oh, in, in person. Yeah, it's probably inner city versus you know a, out in the a, country. A fifth say they have never left the city they live in. That's eighteen percent. Over half say it's more than a year since they climbed a tree. That's fifty-one percent. Twenty-nine percent that it's uh, long since they swam in a river. Four in ten confess their knowledge of the countryside is poor or extremely poor. At 42%. Wow. Apparently there's some countryside awareness campaign in the UK this week. So that's Cows are came people out. too. Yeah. That's amazing. It's could, true. Matt, could your children identify a cow? Yes. Yes. Sometimes they, they can I, identify they, with a cow. They We have cows in our neighborhood. Oh. Yeah. So we drive by and hey, and my kids are like, what's that big brown dog doing out there? Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, son, that's a cow. Mm. Oh. Is that why someone's milking them? Yes, son. He can identify milking, the activity of milking? Yeah. Wow. That's how advanced we are. That's great. In our little farmlet. It's like a townlet with a farm. Anyway, crazy. What's happening nowadays? We were talking about baby boomers versus millennials. So a lot of people give a bad name to the millennial thinking that they don't want to do anything. Well, they're ruining everything. Yeah. Now, why would they say that? Because they kind of are. 
But are they? I they're, mean, Jeff's a millennial. Yeah. Wrong. But no, he's he's like me. We're zennials. Yeah. We're this we're this neat little group in between X and millennials. We're zennials. We we don't quite identify with each group. Yeah, it's true. You're zennials. Did you hear about this woman? Um, this is the difference between a baby boomer. So if you're if you steal a taxi, you just steal it. Okay. Okay. And you're and you're like. You're you're gonna steal the taxi and mm-hmm. get out and I guess go drive yourself somewhere. Right. The difference is the millennial you would think maybe would be too um, disinterested to like earn a buck. Right. But the baby boomer, a Philadelphia police uh, say a 65 year old woman stole a taxi, hmm. but while she was driving around, she actually stopped and picked up fares. Oh. Make a little on the side. See, that's that's because they were Depression age. They grew up with parents of the Depression. So they they know the well, value of a buck. Oh, yeah. You've heard of the gig economy. Yeah. She was stealing it, eh, picked up a gig along the way and started taking yeah. fares. Everything's I mean, about – so now that she's got this asset of a taxi um, cab, she now is going around picking people up. It was um, on the way – so they say Betty Thomas caught the cab around midnight uh, uh, on Thursday. And on the way, she asked the driver to make a stop at a gas station. It was at the station where police say the woman then got into a dispute with the driver about the fare before jumping into the driver's seat and driving off. Police stopped the taxi 30 minutes later and found a 23-year-old woman and her infant in the back seat. The mother told the officers she had held the cab earlier not realizing it was stolen. And that wonderful lady was willing to pick people up. Betty Thomas didn't just have to pick anyone up, but she was more than a thief. She was a cabbie. I'm, I don't think there's any video of this. I'm going to go out on a limb and say something outrageous. What? How do we know it wasn't the baby? Well, because babies can't reach the pedals. Can't they? No. They've got little baby legs. And they can't drive without a car seat. So I'm pretty sure she didn't bring a driving car seat. We do have that commercial uh, for the show. Uh, What is it? The night shift? North Carolina night shift? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where the baby was stealing a car. Yeah, but it was a baby car, I think, wasn't it? I guess that's true. It was a little baby car. So, yeah, it, the baby wasn't driving. Um, yeah, it's. I think it's sad. But, again, a, a, a millennial's different than a baby boomer in how they steal cabs. Um, let's, let's get this over with. Uh, it sounds so negative. You know, last week we spoke with Pluto about his upcoming fight with the uh, mysterious mass that's disrupting the orbit of other planets. And in exchange for the interview, which I'm never really happy interviewing him, Pluto. Really? Pluto. Oh, he might be sad to hear that. Well, I mean, he's a nice planet uh, for a dwarf planet. He's just not, I don't know, we're not as, I I like other planets more, I think, regular planets. Um, But in the interview, he, uh, we promised him that we would promote his big event coming up in a couple of weeks, um, it's it's a throwdown between him and this uh, mysterious mass. Here's the promo. 
This summer, the stars are aligning for the biggest fight in the history of the galaxy, right here in our own backyard. I'm speaking, of course, about mayhem in the Milky Way, in which dwarf planet Pluto will go head-to-head with a galactic orbit disruptor known simply as the mysterious mass in a no-holds-barred fight-to-the-finish cage match in an effort to win the Orion Belt and reclaim his planetary title. Here's a sneak peek at one of Pluto's training sessions with his former fighter manager, Iris, also a dwarf planet himself. Faster! Faster! Uh, Keep it moving! Pick it up! Pick it up! Don't give up! I said don't give up! No, 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 stop! I said stop what you're doing! What do you think you're doing? You want to stop being known as a dwarf planet? Then stop fighting like one. Otherwise, you're never going to beat this mysterious mass of gas. Because he'll kill you to death in two rounds. The mysterious mass? Please. That guy's a bum. You're the bum, Mo. You're not listening to me. This guy don't just want to win. He wants to bury you. He wants to prove to the whole galaxy that you was nothing but some kind of a... That that your classification was some kind of a freak accident the first time out. You know what? Forget it. I, I quit. I quit. What? You don't think I can beat this guy? Well, Mo, let me... Let's, let's put it this way. Ten years ago, you was huge. You was intergalactic. But then the worst thing happened to you. That could happen to any planet. You got declassified. So now I think maybe you ought to be put out the pasture. No. No, I can do it, Iris. It's over, Mo. Nothing is over. Who will win? A mysterious mass that's getting bigger by the minute. Or the washed-up, declassified gas bag that is Pluto. Tune into Mayhem in the Milky Way to find out. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, you've heard about uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. You may even think you know somebody that has it. Um, And yet... Boy, it's it seems like it's being diagnosed more and more, and uh, and yet it's so common here in the United States. About five percent of children, about two and a half percent of adults, but in other countries, they they're not diagnosing as many people at the same rate as we are. So, are we over diagnosing? Are we over prescribing medicine for uh, ADHD? Is there a better approach? Well, here to walk us through his view of it is Doctor Frank Ninavaji. He's a friend of the show. He's on regularly and is an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine Child Study Center. He's also a member of the Yale New Haven Community Medical Group and uh, is the author of his recent book, Biomental Child Development, Perspectives on Psychology and Parenting. And uh, we're honored to have you back, Frank. How are you doing today? Fine. Summer greetings from Yale New Haven Hospital. Oh, we love hearing your voice, Frank. And uh, to me, this ADHD, it's it's kind of, it seems like in a way become a catch-all for 
any kid that can't sit still, any kid that doesn't do well on tests or can't focus, and are we over-diagnosing it? Are we, are we throwing too many people into this category? In a word, we are, and you're right. Uh, but it is, like uh, most things, more complicated, more complex, because, <clears throat> as I say in the article for Psychology Today, which just came out, about a week ago, and has over uh, two two thousand hits already. Wow! Which is pretty fantastic yeah. for me. Um, <clears throat> I called it ADHD, a bundle of deplorable problems <laughs> masked in plain view. Performance deficits, the ADHD calling card. So, it is really a calling card, and the calling card is simply the ticket of entry of many, many children into the mental health system. And as I say in the article, and I tried to make it as clear, but as intelligently presented as possible, it really is only um, uh, the mask or the surface for a whole bundle of issues, really serious uh, problems that need to take priority. And the the ADHD um, diagnosis should not mask what is really underneath all that, although it usually does. And um, sadly enough, many providers, doctors, pediatricians, mental health professionals, only look at the mask and think that it is where it's at, the truth, and try to target it and treat it. And the standard treatment, the number one first-line treatment, is medication. And usually it's a stimulant medication, which is horrible because of the side effects. Mm. So it's, and I, I like that you're calling it, it's, um, you like to refer to it more as a performance deficit disorder. Yes. And and then in your piece, you really do – I mean, again, you do it as only Frank Ninavaji can do it with such incredible intellect. But what it really is, is you say there's three different kind of uh, subtypes of ADHD that, that impact performance. Um, and maybe walk us through those, those three levels of, I guess, subsets. Right. Well, that's very consistent with uh, the standard conventional um, understanding. It's, it's not simply my idiosyncratic or personal view. Uh, all, you know, the, the, the DSM-5 and all of psychiatry, all of neuroscience that um, views ADHD as a disorder, a proper disorder, views it as having uh, three sub-issues, three sub-components. Two are main, and the third I'll talk about. The two main ones are inattention, that's the first. The second is hyperkinetic or overactivity, impulsivity. And the third is the combination of the inattention and the hyperkinetic impulsivity. Now, I like to not merely call inattention, inattention, because really uh, what we're talking about 
when we say inattention, that's a simplification for executive functions of the brain, of the person, of the personality, of how our mind, how critical thinking works, and its executive functions. And this is not simply the way I think about it, but it's the way very sophisticated workers in the area, neuroscientists, neuropsychologists, think of attention and attention deficit. It's a a dysfunction or a disorder of the executive functions, which means attention, concentration, working memory, um, time frames, seeing the future, planning, organizing, strategizing, devising a sequenced uh, plan for activating a goal, and then this is the key, and then activating the goal by putting all that went before into action, performing. Yeah. And usually and typically and by definition, the person with ADHD cannot perform. The person with ADHD usually has a normal to a high IQ, typically is very knowledgeable, has no generally, doesn't have a learning problem generally, is capable of understanding things, remembering, also recalling things in words, has a good knowledge base, but they cannot put it into action. Hmm. Well, They're sort of impotent in that sense. They cannot perform. And that really is the key to ADHD. Now, that's, um, that, that's kind of, especially in the executive functioning part, except it, 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 help me understand, because, for example, in the U.K., they're only diagnosing 3.5% of their uh, kids, I guess, um, with uh, ADHD, where we're diagnosing 5% of our kids with ADHD. And at what point is it actually a disorder versus just a child who has yet to learn how to create their own systems? They're working in an environment that doesn't necessarily isn't conducive to their form of learning and thinking. And they, but then they get, they get called, you know, they, they're, I diagnosed with ADHD, but they really just have never learned how to create their own system. Well, as usual, as usual, you've brilliantly answered your question. I mean, it's, that's the problem, right? Is that this yeah, is developmental growth, right? A lot of it is cultural. A lot of it is perspective. And a lot of it is the way a society is built. For instance, you won't see any of these statistics or diagnoses in countries uh, uh, where, uh, you know, the children are uh, coming from families where where there are uh, mother, father, five children in the family, a grandmother, grandfather, uncles, aunts living in the same house. Everyone's mm. doing a task, a job, uh, some going to school, some not going to school. Uh, everyone has a job to do, and they just do their job because that's the way it is. It's in our, the Western uh, culture, which is very highly refined, almost test tube-like. We're so um, sterilized that um, 
we are so focused on academics, academic success, and uh, ambition, competitiveness, and success in areas which really don't have to do with what used to be important, manual labor, productivity, family life, working as teams, that here, for instance, in the USA, uh, the culture, the society, values, perspectives are very different from other places. So we're more prone to, in a very microscopic way, look at how the child is performing in school, and then families are very demanding and want children to perform and outperform, usually more than they actually are capable, hmm. more than their brain capacity can yield. You know the old expression, getting blood out of a stone? Yeah. I see that every day. So you see parents are wanting so much more out of their children that right. they'd rather receive a diagnosis, a clinical diagnosis of ADHD than maybe just realize this child's different. This child is different and cannot do as much as the child who is gifted with capabilities and uh, abilities where excelling is easier yeah. and doesn't require medications. Many, I see, you know, it's a sort of a funny thing. I see families really believing that the, aid, the so-called ADHD medications increase intelligence and I wrote that in the article, they really believe that Ritalin, Adderall, Vyvanse, and all these stimulant pills increase intelligence. And everyone, every reasonable doctor, pediatrician, social worker, neuroscientist, knows that these meds don't. Hmm. What they do is boost the neurocircuitry in the brain, and they they may optimize the circuits that are already in place and there. So they help whatever's there work better, but not to a higher, higher, higher level commensurate with the wishes, fantasies, imaginations of, for instance, the parent who wants their child to be a doctor, a lawyer, or excel beyond the child's capacity. Hmm. Yeah. Powerful. So it's so in a way, as we look at uh, the performance performance deficit disorder, ADHD, yeah. as we break it into kind of executive functioning and inattentiveness, hyperkinetic or a combination of both, you're saying in, in certain situations, all the child might need isn't any pharmaceutical intervention. They may just simply need educational intervention to help them create systems, habits, behavior patterns, ways to make it through their day in a more organized, healthy way? <clears throat> I believe that all children, especially children with performance deficit, demand that in the educational environment. They require it the way they require pencils, pens, paper, uh, technology, computers, learning how to read, write, and do mathematics. They, these, this is demand, what you just said. Those children 
that also have the um, hyperkinetic and impulsive disinhibition that cannot sit still, that neurologically have this um, neurocircuitry that's disinhibited, and that is probably real, yeah. can use a little bit of medication. But as I say in the article, there are medications which are mild, not stimulants, and which are uh, FDA-approved to treat the uh, hyperarousability that goes along with the package called uh, ADHD. And I mention some of them. Hmm. One, of, one of the better ones is called guanfacine long-acting. The trade name is Intunive. I use it a, 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 all the time. Most of the kids that I see come in with... Uh, a monumental amount of stimulant medication. They all come in with horrendous side effects. And I try to persuade families uh, to uh, give me permission, informed consent, to discontinue, taper down the stimulant. And eventually that does happen after time. And then we start the milder medication. And then essentially... Virtually all the side effects after a month or two go away. Insomnia, irritability, mood swings, temper tantrum, uh, irritability, uh, lack of appetite, uh, suppression in growth in height. Hmm. The children start to grow. And another thing that's not spoken about is they start smiling. Boy, they're happy. Stimulant medications that stop children from smiling. They cause a constriction of affect. That's the technical phraseology. They don't smile. They have a sort of scowl on their face. I take that medicine away, and in a week, they start smiling and oh. laughing, and they, they sort of become in touch with their emotional life. And then you can become in touch with them emotionally and then start to work with them on their emotions, their feelings, and you elicit them as a team member in the treatment plans and the academic plans that you devise to help them do better than they've done in the past. Hmm. Boy, you know, Frank, it sounds like it's that, that there's a big, uh, even a bigger responsibility on relating to your kid as you go through this process, instead of just kind of sending him to the doctors to get medicated so he can perform, um, this is this is more of an approach where we've got to work together and and not throw the most drugs at it we can, but throw the throw the right diagnosis at the right thing and and then slowly work on it together. That's right. Drugs are not the answer. Drugs are absolutely not the answer. We as human beings. As persons are the answer, and the child is a person. The child is a human being, and I use the phrase life story. The child has a life story. Uh, in doing, in preparing for my book, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, Making Sense of Emotion, Innovating Emotional Intelligence, I had to devote a large section besides on emotion, on thinking, critical thinking, and executive functions and a chapter on the neuroscience of thinking and executive functions. And I came across uh, uh, National Institute of uh, Health and Mental Health. They um, have a toolbox, and they talk about cognition. And in cognition, 
they defined it as uh, the combination of both executive functions and episodic memory. And I thought to myself, what the heck do they mean by episodic memory? And by episodic memory, they mean one's sense of one's emotional autobiography, how you recall the sentient, meaningful events in your life and past, hmm. childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, middle age, older age, how you recall those events, how you remember them with emotion. And that's considered cognition. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, we got to take a break, Frank, but that's, that memories are tied to emotion, right? And our ability to recall is tied to that emotion. And uh, then instead, we'd rather just, I guess, medicate, medicate away some of this emotion um, and their memories and this interaction. We'll take a break, continuing this journey with Dr. Frank Ninavaji. Up next, we're going to, to try to understand what else we should be doing when it comes to our child, uh, their diagnosis, um, how we can be more involved as parents, what we should be saying to the doctors, how we could push back. To, to make sure the diagnosis is a proper one and we're handling and focusing on the right thing. All that straight ahead up here next on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. We are on the phone with Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He is a, a friend of the show and an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine Child Study Center. Today, he's walking us through a new perspective on ADHD, where he's, uh, he's, he's suggesting maybe we look at it more as a performance deficit disorder, and we, we probably need to understand it as a, as a complicated um, what do you call it? An ADHD is a bundle of deplorable problems masked in plain view. That was in his article on Psychology Today. I believe uh, the name of your blog on Psychology Today is um, – is it uh, Envy Theory? No, what is it? What is it? Envy uh, This. Envy This. Uh, it, it really I, – I love how you, how you take us on this journey, Frank, because really um, – we throw a label on it. We then have a child diagnosed with ADHD because they're not performing the way we want them to be performing. We throw a bunch of meds at them. But like you're saying, this is a very complicated disorder. Some of it's executive functioning, the ability to focus, and some of it's hyperkinetic, uh, kind of the hyperactivity side of the behavior. Um, and then a weird combination of both. How How do we... How do we get the message out to all of the those that are prescribing? I mean, I'm assuming a professor at Yale um, in in pediatric psychiatry is like yourself is is having a completely different insight and experience with this than maybe a pediatrician that might be diagnosing a kid with ADHD. Well, actually, the statistic is that. Um Seventy percent of all diagnoses of ADHD and all medications for stimulants are made by pediatricians in the pediatric office in a 15-minute visit. Hmm. Yeah, it's a one, two, three. 
a school says to mother, your child is not behaving, your child is not performing, probably child has attention problems, ADHD, bring him to the pediatrician. Mother brings child to the pediatrician, and, you know, all you need, you know, they have um, kind of Chinese menus of checkoffs. <laughs> yeah. Does your child do his homework? No. No. Nope. Does your child answer back? Yes. Does your child move around a lot? Yes. Does your child um, get up early in the morning when you ask him to? No. Oh, got ADHD. Yeah, All sounds like a normal symptoms. kid to me. Okay. Then they start with the stimulant medication. They start with five milligrams of Ritalin, and uh, that works for a week or two. And then with the stimulant medications, they're... Um, they have tolerance and withdrawal effects, which means uh, a little bit works for a week or two, and then you have to double it. And then that doesn't work anymore. Then you have to double it. Then you have to double it. Then you mm. have to double it until that medicine doesn't work anymore, Ritalin. And then you go to a heavier-duty form, something like uh, Vyvanse or Adderall or Concerta, and then you're really dealing with big guns with big side effects, and then you get insomnia, anorexia, ticks, twitches in the face. You get mood swings, irritability. The child is not smiling, laughing. And then it gets so complicated because the mother will say, I think my child's depressed now. Oh, my child just punched a hole in the wall. I think my child has uh, mm. anger management problems. Maybe my child is bipolar. And then it gets so convoluted if they bring that, their child to a clinic, that's what the intake worker sees and make, maybe would make a diagnosis of bipolar, which is you know, overdiagnosed. Uh, right. And then new medications are added on top of the old diagnoses and the old. So it gets so complicated. And then when nothing works anymore, after years, they get sent to a residential school like mine. And then I have to kind of um, sort out what's going on and then little by little by little take away the diagnoses, taper down all the medications, and start with a clean slate and work from scratch. Mm. What do you suggest we do as parents? We've only got two or three more minutes, Frank. What do we do if we're sensing there's more to it? I mean, we might see a little of the hyperactivity um, the hyperkinetic behavior, they're, they are maybe struggling a little bit focusing. What should we do? Okay. In general, structure, structure, structure. The child, every child, every adolescent needs maximal structure. So you have to structure the environment and the day with routines, with plans, with organization as much as possible. And the parent... Both parents have to do that in terms of all sectors of that child's life. You have to externalize everything that you want the child to do. Don't expect the child to remember or um, be motivated enough to do what you feel the child needs to do. You have to externalize cues, notes, um, hints. Everything has to be written down. Uh, put in their bedroom, put on boards, put on the refrigerator door. That's what you do in the home. Then if, if 
uh, parents feel that the performance in school is an issue, you really have to get involved with the school people. Start with the teacher, then go to the principal, then go to the social worker, and you can even call meetings. They call them uh, PPTs, where you talk with all the people involved with your child and have them tell you what they see. And if they feel they can't see anything, it's your right legally to have that child tested, psychological testing. And then you go from there. Always trying to avoid a, a carte blanche diagnosis of ADHD, because once that diagnosis is made, medication gets, uh, you know, reflux, uh, reflex uh, 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 action to, for medication. What you want is a, a reflex action for not merely special education, but a highly structured curriculum in the classroom. Hmm. That's and it, huh? that should help. That always helps. Yeah, no, that's that's powerful. Um, boy, Frank, I wish we had more time. We'll have you back to continue talking about this and your books, uh, your new book coming out on um, emotional intelligence as well and the power of emotions. Dr. Frank Ninavaji is his name. Uh, you can find out more on his blog, Envy This, on Psychology Today, plus uh, get all of his latest and, and greatest uh, work just by going to that website. He really is a great resource and um, changing lives and helping us as parents recognize that this is more about getting it right, right? And, and, and creating the conditions for the child to succeed, not just immediately medicating. What if we thought of it like there was an appeal? Instead, we've got to figure out how to create a relationship and an understanding and a pattern and be there and, and learn our way through this with our kids by exerting more time and energy instead of just medicating. I mean, eventually it might come down to medication, right? It might come back down to pharmaceuticals, but it doesn't have to in the first go around or the second or the third. It might be the fourth thing we'd try. Um, and anyway, interesting stuff. We'll continue the discussion. Up next, this is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when we talk about ADHD and then the drugs that they give you for ADHD tend to be uh, speed, amphetamine, for example, and yet so many people are out there on drugs like methamphetamine. Do you think they're just trying to medicate their own ADHD? I, I actually believe so. Listen to this crazy story. Uh, police said a man was arrested trying to buy drugs at a police station. Talk about um, attention deficit problem. Well, they know uh, they have them there at the police station. Well, that's where they took them. Yeah. They took them away from me last time, so maybe they're still – maybe you still have them. Police say two men have been arrested after they tried to buy drugs from an officer at a Connecticut police station. Hartford police say an officer had finished his shift, was walking to his vehicle Sunday when two men approached and asked if he would sell him some drugs. Hey, dude, you, you want to sell us some drugs? <laughs> What? The two men said they needed to find an ATM to get cash, so the officer directed them to a machine inside the lobby of the police department. Police said that while the men went inside to get $60 for drugs, the officer called for help and the men were arrested. Hartford police did not release their names. The $60 was taken as evidence. Evidence, huh? Yeah, dude, we got, I got drugs. 
I got drugs. You, you need an ATM? Just go right in there. Ask Officer Lewis where the ATM is. I'll be then, surprised if that money ends up in the evidence room. Because no, there's will. a Chipotle right next door to that police station. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, but Chipotle's got other problems lately. You got to be careful. That's true. I mean, I'm not disparaging them, but they've got some evidence in the police station too. <laughs> yes, they do. Anyway, uh, you know, don't go to a police station to get your drugs, folks. When you can go to your psychiatrist, for heaven's sakes. Crazy stuff. We're dealing with a crazy world, and uh, we're helping you try to get through it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Hope you're doing well. Happy, uh, what is it, Wednesday to you. And got a great show for you lined up. We're going to be talking about internet companies, how they've cornered the culture and undermined democracy. Sounds so says some. Allegedly. Kind of sounds a little negative. But uh, are these big, huge, mega tech companies looking out for your best interest? And why is it that all of these countries in Europe and Asia, are uh, these countries are starting to sue these companies for... Monopoly practices for security issues in Europe. There, uh, the EU has sued Google. Yeah, for well, Alphabet, but that's their parent company. Uh, so Google, because you go to their search engine and say you're looking to uh, find uh, some air flight yeah. information, so just, travel. You just want some travel information. And you know, there's all these travel sites, thousands of sites. Travelocity, you got Expedia, yeah. Travago, all these different sites. And what pops up first every time? Google Travel. Isn't that the weirdest thing? Yeah. Like, I wasn't that even work? searching for Google Travel. And it may not even be the best option, but because right. and, and they try to say it's like it, this organically happens with the search algorithm. And really? Like, every time you pop up first. Well, when, and they found that they're trying to push people to their sites instead of like this. Well, when eighty percent of ad revenue goes through your company. It would make it so Google pops up first at everything. Their response is there's other search engines. You can, you can go search what hey, you go want. go Bing it. Go use yeah. Bing. And But they're like, no, no one does that. People use Google. So, yeah. And it's the same kind of argument that Microsoft had back in the 90s, I believe, when yeah. all computers shipped with Microsoft Explorer. Right, and that was pushing out Netscape that, or whatever. That's their browser, mm-hmm. right? Microsoft Explorer. So when you hopped on there... It was killing every other browser in the market. I mean, what about AOL? That that one browser we could never get uninstalled. Right. It was there always. Because once it was in your system, it was going to be a part of your life forever. What about that? So we'll be talking with uh, an expert on the subject. And um, and really, should we? is it time to kind of tear these, these big, huge tech companies, Google's, Facebook's, Amazon – is it time to break them down into smaller pieces? We'll get into that. Interesting subject straight ahead. Plus, by the way, we're celebrating Ice Cream Sandwich Day. Ice 
Jeff put a song together. Is this you singing? This is great. A great point. Great mm. point. Today's the day you do not <laughs> want to leave your ice cream sandwiches out. Mm. So, uh, happy ice cream sandwich day. There are pictures from the 1900s of people eating um, ice cream sandwiches just and paying only one penny to do so. What happened to that inflation? I went to a wedding. And now they serve handmade ice cream cookie sandwiches. Yeah. So you pick your cookie. They're hand scooped. Yes, they are. Yeah. And you get to pick your ice cream. And I think I went and got in line like three times. Dif- so different cookies. Oh yeah. Oh, nice. I tried everything. Are these the ones that are served by a butler who's wearing white gloves and a tuxedo? Kind of served to you on a platter. Yeah, minus the butler and the tuxedo and the gloves. Hmm. So it's pretty much the same. It's just some kid. Hey, sir, what would you like on your ice cream Sunday? So you get some macadamia nut cookies. Mmm. And then yeah. what ice cream? Some hazelnut? No, or? I got um, I got it can't peach just be... ice cream. Yeah, it's got to be like peach. With peach snickerdoodle, with snickerdoodle cookies. Hmm. Oh, it was so good. It was a dough fest. That's what my wife said every time she grabbed my belly. It's a dough fest. Could, could you get the cookies <laughs> with cookie dough ice cream? Yeah, I bet. Mm. It was a great night. One of my favorite weddings I've been to in a long time. <laughs> and you don't like weddings. And the funny thing is I don't even remember whose wedding it was. That's not important. That, yeah. Mm. But I do remember peach ice cream with snickerdoodles. Mm, 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 mm. But I, I wouldn't mind a little chocolate between two peanut butter cookies. Oh, yeah. Ooh. You can make these at home, by the way. Come again? You just go buy some Oreos and some ice cream, and there you go. Really? Yeah, just have an Oreo cookie. Well, then it would have to be peanut butter ice cream in an Oreo. Yeah, whichever way we'll you want to Oh, peanut butter ice cream. You know what sounds really good today? Root beer ice cream. Go to Flay and Flubble You. Yeah. Yeah. Flay and Flubble Blue. Or a grocery store. I love root beer ice cream. Ever since, you know, I was a pup. We got all that straight ahead. We'll get to uh, the internet uh, companies messing up the world, (laughs) allegedly. We'll get to uh, more celebration of Ice Cream Day, plus other headlines, other information you didn't even know you needed to know. Apparently, President Trump wrote his son's. He consulted on it. Wrong. He he advised. He advised. No, no, No one's pointing out that it was. Wholly incorrect, and his lawyer went on like five different Sunday morning shows saying that President Trump had no knowledge of any of this. But that's fine. But I mean, yeah. But sometimes the law- the lawyer is the last to know. Apparently. Did he did he include the uh, the downtown New York doodle at the bottom? No, but that was worth ten grand. It was good times, good times. We'll get to all that fun. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what do we need to be paying attention to? Authorities say the 24-year-old Brady Kilpatrick was taken down by a team of law enforcement officials at a home in Martin County, Florida. Shortly after 7 p.m. Tuesday night, Kilpatrick had no idea a team of law enforcement uh, was surrounding the community where he was trying to hide out. He uh, He's one of the guys that broke out of jail in Alabama with oh, the yeah. peanut butter. Peanut butter Talked about that yeah. story? Uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, earlier an Alabama sheriff said the dozen inmates escaped from his county jail. 
by covering up the numbers, identifying an outside door with peanut butter, and persuaded a new jail employee to watch them on a closed-circuit TV to open from his control booth. He said, yeah, it sounds kind of funny, but it happened. It totally happened. We Was he the it. last one? Yeah, he's the last yeah. one. Ah. So all 12 have been returned back to safekeeping in Alabama. Apparently, apparently you can get out of jail with peanut butter in Alabama. So, Man, that's where I'd want to go to jail. I love peanut butter. Keep that in mind. Uh, Apple's earnings climbed 12% to $8.7 billion in the company's latest quarter amid rising demands for iPhones, while the iPad snapped out of a three-and-a-half-year sales slump. Revenue incre- everyone's replacing right. after three-and-a-half years. You have to replace your iPad, right? So right. you got to get a new one. Um, so revenue increased 7% from last year to $45 billion. September yeah. will range. They said September. They they this next quarter because they may release a new phone will range from forty nine billion to fifty two billion. They're not you know it's kind of a guess. Give you a ten billion range there. To by the way, they have like two hundred and sixty billion dollars cash on hand. That's right. Well, well just sitting in banks in Ireland. Yeah, where they oh, where they're incorporated. Only we could get that money back in America. <laughs> Was it you that said that they're not doing any more uh, shuffles? Not yeah, the yeah. shuffle and the nano are gone. gone. Just, if you need something Sad. that's just playing music, you have to get an iPod Touch, which is mm. 250 bucks, I think. That's a tough touch. One interesting fact out of the <laughs> quarterly earnings for Apple, they have sold 1.2 billion iPhones since launching the device a decade ago. 1.2 billion. 1.2 billion. By the way, there's like, what, 7 billion people on the earth? 7.5 billion? Yeah. They're not even touching it. Come on. No, keep working. Pick up your game. Talking to yourself doesn't mean you're crazy. In fact, the habit might be downright smart. That's a takeaway from a new study in Scientific Reports, which involves two separate experiments. In the first, researchers at Michigan State University and and the University of Michigan monitored the brain activity of 29 students who were asked to review neutral and disturbing images and talk about how they felt while referring to themselves in the first and third persons. Okay. Right? Simultaneously? Okay. Uh, probably, yeah, separately. In the second, researchers asked 50 participants in to internally reflect on painful experiences in the same way, first and third person. In both cases, third person self-talk allowed participants to better regulate their emotions to relieve stress. Oh. It kind of switches you into a different mode of experiencing negative emotions when you use your name rather than the word I. Well, that's why Trump's so successful then. Because he, doesn't, talks, he talks yeah. about himself all the time that way. Donald J. Trump, as he says. Yes. That's interesting. So uh, it, it may, you're not crazy. You're just, you actually may be healthy pumping yourself yeah. up. They're saying it's therapeutic and it takes you out of the situation. So if you have a something negative, something depressing, and you say, you know, your name rather than referring to yourself when you talk to yourself, right? Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Yeah, you're able to kind of step out of it and look at it as if it's not you. Plus, it helps, you know, drown out the hundreds of other voices that are in your head telling you to do things that you don't really want to do in the first place. Walk into the street. (laughs) Don't do that one. Walk into the street. And finally, if you're looking for a job. Yeah. Today's your day. What? Amazon earlier this year announced hiring 5,000 people, letting them all work from home. Why? Because they needed people to oh, work okay. the phones, right? Yeah. Well, today they're going – on today, Wednesday. Today. 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 Uh, today. August 2nd, they will hire 50,000 people. Fifty or 5,000? 50. So we get to work for Amazon and stay at home? No. The 5,000 was earlier this year, oh. and those were mostly working in phones, <laughs> customer service, that kind of thing. 
today, 50,000 people to work in warehouses. People are mad. They have 13 fulfillment centers around the country. And they need they need people they need bodies to help uh, help you get your you know but doohickey this, from this Amazon. This isn't even for see this isn't even seasonal. This no. is just because these are real jobs. They're hard work. They require some manual labor and some difficult conditions. Uh, some of the buildings are you know they're warehouses. It's yeah. gonna get hot. It's gonna get hot. It's you're gonna sweat. You're not gonna get rich, but the pay will be between. Maybe like eleven dollars an hour to twenty dollars an hour, depending. And you will get the company five percent discount. There's some managerial type jobs as you work. Your, yeah, your, you'll work what, your way up in the teams. Sweat I mean, shop. there's well, that is kind of a sweatshop. Uh, so, but there's full and part time jobs that offer medical benefits and tuition reimbursement. Uh, so, I mean, they're they're real jobs. And it says uh, this is the part that's interesting. 50,000 jobs, right? In June, the entire United States economy added 222,000 jobs. Unbelievable. Right? So their one-day total will be almost a quarter of the amount that was hired in June. Boy. And the retail industry, they're just shedding jobs like crazy. Every, you know, people yeah, yeah. are shutting down you, uh, stores and locations, people losing jobs. They're going to add 50,000 jobs in well, one Well, it's day. pretty much, it seems like everybody from uh, Sears, Kmart, and Macy's mm-hmm. Ought to just head over to Amazon. Head on over. I've been shedding like crazy, too. No, but that's sloughing. We call that sloughing. That's okay. your leg just slowly sloughing into nothingness. Yeah. That's different. So, it, and and just with retail in itself, it, it, this shows how it's changing from walk into a store. Yeah. Sir, would you like socks with that pair of shoes you just purchased? Now it's online, and those jobs where you would do customer service face-to-face it's now more of a fulfillment center type yeah, situation now you're not, for retail. No one's talking to the customer, really, except some little icon right. on the computer. But do you need someone to offer you socks? Yeah. Do you need some? I, went I, into need, a, I always need the upsell. Several years ago, I walked into a store, sat down to try. You know, I, I found a pair of shoes and sat down. All of a sudden, the person ran over, grabbed the shoe, and started putting it on my foot. Whoa. Really? And I'm like, whoa, what's happening? He goes, that's what we do here. We that guy didn't even work there, did he? No, he did. And it was just, it was that type of store. That's embarrassing when they just and, grab your leg. And, and I don't start... shop at stores where they help you with your feet. That just Don't you find that an awkward moment? Like, what are you Maybe doing? Maybe we don't have those even anymore, where you sit down and the guy used to sit on that funny little chair with the foot mm-hmm. place where you put your foot, and then he just, mine would always like massage my calf. He'd help you with the, the fitting, as they mm-hmm. call the it. The fitting. Mine would always put the socks on his hands and start doing sock puppets. Yeah, yours was different. Yeah. Your guy was different. He was good, though. He oh, was the yeah. best. I like how he always looked you in the eye. Oh, well, always, you always yeah. want your shoe salesman to look you in the eye. So in light of our next guest, should we should, – is that a good thing or is it is it concerning that a company can just all of a sudden say, hey, we're going to hire 50,000 people? Well, I guess it's good except um, – what happens – I mean, where are all the other jobs, right? Like, what do you mean the other jobs? Well, that's one company, Yeah, 50,000 jobs. Meanwhile, other companies losing jobs like crazy. So many would argue this is kind of a monopoly. There's something going on where no one else is growing. Everyone else is shrinking, but one company dominates an entire area. And there is no other company online really, is there, like Amazon? No. Even Walmart can't. 
compete necessarily with Amazon. They're trying, not on the you know they're yeah. having they're they're having to ramp up to that. There is a company called Alibaba, but oh, it's yeah. in China, 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 and Alibaba. it's a different kind of operation there. But uh, and it doesn't really have much traction here yeah. in the U.S. Did you hear the uh, the owner of the founder of Costco died? <gasps> really? Yeah. I mean, it'll still be open. It's oh. okay. The company's in good hands. Yeah, you you're can... fine that way. But the co-founder and chairman of Costco passed away. How old was he? A uh, 74 years old. Jeff wow. Brotman has died. He has served as the chairman of the company since 1994. It's with great sadness that they announce uh, the the passing of this great man. Hmm. Anyway, so which is interesting because do you, have you ever? Seen like in the man, in the on-site online Costco, you can buy caskets, you can buy oh yeah everything you need. Really, yeah. So it makes you wonder, like, is he doing his entire funeral through Costco? Hmm. Is he going to have the party tray? They have cold cuts. <laughs> Just as long as it's not the in-between coupon period, that's the most awkward period going to yeah. Costco when there's nothing on sale. Yeah. You look around and you're confused. You don't know right. what store you're in. Best, it, by the way, best produce ever. If you buy the casket, don't like it, can you return it? Oh, for sure. They, they have the most amazing. everything back. Yeah, they've got a great return policy. Do you have to walk it in the store? That'd yeah, that's kind of the weird, weird thing. Well, they have those big carts that you could okay, put them on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of it would be hanging off the edge, but... Yeah, that's. But if there's no body in it, then and like, is it one of those things where you do you buy two or three and then you take them home and then oh, yeah. you see which one you like? You do yeah. it with shoes. You do it with clothing. You can do it with a casket. I mean, and do you do? I guess you, you look for colors. You look for the squeaking squeakiness. Oh, is there squeakiness yeah. Yeah, involved? Well, I would. I look. I always check the seal. You want a well-oiled hinge. Yeah. Anyways, that's too bad. May he rest in peace. It's pretty cool. Uh, and what I mean, really, you build an empire, and then everybody knows about you so much so that your empire now people are announcing your death on a radio show. That's a, that's you've made it. By the way, I think that's Don Shaline running frantically down the stairs in our direction right now. Oh, is he? Is he? Yeah, he's probably got some stuff to tell us. Um, anyway, may he rest in peace. Seriously, that's cool. I mean, not cool that he died, but cool that he made such a huge impact. Just starting a warehouse store. Pretty powerful. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to take on uh, this question a little bit. The Internet companies, are they cornering the culture? Are they cornering our democracy? Are they lifting our democracy? Or are they creating issues? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, sort through all the crazy stuff of life. If you got up this morning, around 61% of you checked your phone for notifications within five minutes of getting up. Oh, that's just sad, isn't it? Just how social media and online platforms are slowly taking control of our lives. They're also taking control of the market and of our government. Could huge tech companies such as Google, Facebook, and Amazon be uh, contributors 
or even maybe possibly drivers for America's ailing economy. Here to speak with us today is Jonathan Taplin, the author of Move Fast and Break Things, How Google, Facebook, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. Uh, Jonathan Taplin is the Director Emeritus of the Annenberg Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California, and his areas, uh, he taps uh, Taplin's areas of specialization are in international communication management and the field of digital media entertainment. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us today. Good to be with you, Matt. Do you really believe um, that these big companies, these big tech giants are, uh, I mean, a lot of people just kind of automatically assume they're positive, right? It's Facebook, for heaven's sakes, Jonathan. We're connecting the world, but you you seem to have a little bit uh, more cynical view of it. Well, look, the Internet was originally conceived as a very decentralized medium. But in the late 80s, the people who run Google and Amazon and eventually when Facebook came on had a very different view, which was that the Internet would be a winner-takes-all business, that there would be one search engine, there would be one e-commerce giant, and there would be one social media giant. And, And not only did they all agree that they would each take their own space in that world, but the growth of these companies in the last 10 years has been astronomical. If you looked at the largest companies in the world 10 years ago, there was only one tech company in that group, which was Microsoft. Hmm. Uh, the rest were companies like Citibank or General Electric or uh, you know, ExxonMobil. And today, it's all tech. I mean, the largest company in the world is Apple, and the second largest is Google, and then Amazon, and then Facebook, and then Microsoft. So... So beyond that, what you have to ask is um, what happened to the creative community when this rise came up? So if you're a musician or you're a journalist, your livelihood has been pretty much decimated by the rise of these great platforms. Um, You know, there are 50 percent fewer people working in journalism today than there were uh, 10 years ago. Uh, The Revenues of the music business have fallen by 78% in the last 10 years, and that's directly attributable to the power of a comp- of a, uh, platform like YouTube. So, you know, no musician can keep his tunes off of YouTube. YouTube says to the music business, your content is going to be on YouTube whether you want it to or not. So the only question you have to ask is... Uh, do I want a little advertising money or not? And when I said a little, I mean really a little. Hmm. If you had a million downloads on iTunes for a song, you could make $900,000. If you have a million streams on YouTube, you can make $900. Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a different game, isn't it? And Google, for example, uh, Google owns the Alphabet, the company Alphabet, and um, they boy, they're getting into everything. And we t- we were talking earlier about how uh, Apple has like what two hundred and sixty billion dollars of cash on hand, just ready to buy whatever I guess competitor, whatever uh, you know anybody or anything. Jeff Bezos is now. You know, playing with uh, um, Bill Gates as being the richest man in the world. I mean, I guess all of the signs are there. And is it? And then we see Europe. Uh, Europe is suing 
um, and um, and suing these big com- some of these big companies for some you know safety or some security issues, some copyright infringe or uh, um, other uh, what are they called um, monopoly type of practices? I mean, is it time? That, do you suggest that it's time that we maybe break some of these up, make them you know make them more competitive? Well, look. Um, what the Europeans did, which was say that Google is biasing its search results to benefit its own services, whether it's restaurant recommendations or travel recommendations or anything over those of uh, a company like Yelp or something else, is a rational thing to do. And in fact, the U.S. was going to do the same thing, except the politicians under the Obama administration you know, decided to protect Google rather than to prosecute it. So, I mean, I do believe that antitrust may be one of the remedies, but there are also other things that are coming before that. So the Europeans have also passed a very large privacy restriction, which goes into effect next May, called the GDPR. Uh, and, and essentially what it says is the um, the basic situation is that you're no longer opted in to giving these services um, all of your data by default. You have to actively say, yes, I want them to get my data. And that will be a huge change in the business model for these companies. And if that same privacy restriction came to the United States, that would be a big change as well. Um, So there's no doubt that things are changing. We have to remember these companies were built by acquisition. Here's, you know, Amazon's about to buy Whole Foods. Uh, Amazon bought Twitch. Amazon bought Alexa. Amazon bought many, many companies, mm. Zappos. Uh, Google bought YouTube. Google bought DoubleClick. Uh, Facebook got, bought Instagram. Facebook bought WhatsApp. So, I mean, the question then becomes... Do you first say, okay, they can't buy any more companies, they can't get any bigger? The second step might be to say, yeah, you have to break them up. And that has been done in the past. Um, You know, I would argue that antitrust has actually led to a great deal of innovation. We have to remember that in the 1950s, AT&T was the complete monopoly phone company, and the government sued them and got a consent decree in which AT&T had to share all of its intellectual property for free from Bell Labs to any other company in America. And that meant the transistor, the satellite, the semiconductor, the laser, all of the foundational technologies of the digital age then became free for companies, new companies like Texas Instruments and Motorola and Fairchild Semiconductor and Intel And so that was the first explosion. And then the government went after IBM in the 70s and said, this idea that you can control both the the hardware and the software is wrong. And although it took 13 years, IBM eventually, uh, you know, let go of controlling both the software and the hardware. And when they built the personal computer. They let two young guys named Bill Gates and Paul Allen huh. build the software, and we all know where that went. Yeah. And finally, you remember the government sued Microsoft 20 years ago because Microsoft wanted 
you'd have to use Internet Explorer if you use Windows. And that would have prevented Google from growing, and, and the gov government won that case, and the rest is history. So my argument is that antitrust often leads to new innovations. So not to be afraid of it, but see it as a see it as another opportunity i mean and and you've you've uh, somewhere i in all of the reading i did for uh, to prepare for you i there's the whole story of facebook and snapchat i mean th there's not yeah. necessarily equal uh i mean the, the facebook's kind of now known for going in and and borrowing taking copying certain things snapchat's doing so instead of buying snapchat up um, and and owning them, they just kind of slowly went and copied them. Well, actually, what happened was that Facebook offered to buy Snapchat for $3 billion. And the young entrepreneurs at Snapchat said, no, we want to stay independent. And, of course, that was a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, you know, once Facebook was spurned, they then went in and they basically ripped off every element of Snapchat stories and now they didn't even change the name. Now it's called Instagram Stories or Facebook Stories or uh, WhatsApp Stories. And, and they, they took the whole idea of Snapchat Stories that you could draw on the screen and everything and, you know, just ripped it off. And, of course, that has stalled Snapchat's growth radically. Snapchat went public at $28 a share, and today its stock is at 13 Oh, yeah. So, I mean... It's not, you know, these guys don't play fair. They, they play hardball, and uh, that's what monopolies do. Well, and today again we were talking about the fact that 50,000 jobs by Amazon were announced today. They're hiring 50,000 people for warehouses. And, and but meanwhile, you see all of these other malls closing down, all of these other uh, jobs being lost. Um, so – in in a way, there's there's data. The data's there. There's only certain companies growing. There's certain companies dominating. So in the end, uh, I guess breaking them down is one way to handle it. What are some other things that that maybe might be some solutions to uh, to spread the joy a bit? Well, look, if if you think about just the simple thing of of the music business, if musicians could say to YouTube. Uh, it's called Take Down, Stay Down. Musicians say, I don't want my song on YouTube. And then it becomes YouTube's responsibility to keep it off the platform. And, of course, they can do that. They have Shazam-like technology called Content ID. So when someone tries to upload a song that's not controlled by them, uh, it would block them just the way it blocks pornography. Hmm. You notice there's no pornography on YouTube. Yeah, it's, it's that's because they have very smart artificial intelligence that when someone tries to upload uh, pornography, it it puts it in a separate queue, and a human looks at it and says, "Is this a National Geographic show or is this porn?" And if it's porn, it goes in the trash. Hmm. So um, these those kind of changes to the law. GDPR, uh, other changes around privacy. If you think about the nature of, um, you know, when I've been on the road promoting this book, uh, I came across a neurobiologist who said to me, you know that the same 
app inside of the smartphone, which tells you how many steps you climbed yesterday, uh, how many stairs you climbed, could tell you whether you have Parkinson's or not, because there's a, it's called an accelerometer. Hmm. And it could record that because it's a very specific tremor to Parkinson's. Well, if that's just sitting in an open app there, are they going to sell that to health insurance companies? Are they going to sell that to your employer? You think about all the ways that your privacy is being compromised by the information that you willingly give up, not even really knowingly. You know, people think about auto insurance. Well, you think that your auto insurance rates are set by how well you drive, but that's not true. It's where you drive. So if two women, you know, were living in a suburb and one of them drove down town to teach in a rough school neighborhood and parked their car there, her health insurance, I mean, her driver's insurance might be 20% higher than the other because they, and of course, we know where they get the data. They get it from GPS on a, on a mobile phone. So, so true. These, these concerns are ones I think the whole society should think about. I know there's a lot of convenience in these applications, and that's not going to change. I mean, we're, we're always going to have a, a search engine. But when you have a company like Google that has almost 90% market share, in search and search advertising, it's not healthy. When you have a company like Facebook that has 75% of all mobile social, and by the way, that every newspaper gets 50 to 60% of its traffic from Facebook, then you have an imbalance. And of course, that also leads to things like fake news. Right, and fake news and and yeah, and and what what news gets promoted, what news gets pushed um, out there, what algorithms are running what? It's interesting stuff. We're speaking with Jonathan Taplin, and uh, Jonathan is the um, author of the new book "Move Fast and Break Things: How Google, Facebook, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy." We'll continue the discussion when we come back and uh, see if we can't add more light to at least help you decide the value of these companies. I mean, we don't have to always inherently believe they're saints or sinners, right? We just got to figure out what's really happening and be a little bit more open-minded about it. We'll take a break. Continue the journey. Uh, Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So much to cover uh, as we're talking about um, America's tech giants. Some of the biggest companies we have in the country now are these these big tech companies: Google, Facebook, Amazon. You hear about how much money they have, you know, saved up. How much how much stuff they're buying? How much innovation is taking place? They're really on the cutting edge of so many things and offering a lot of jobs. They're providing money. But interesting thing about their jobs, uh, they don't they don't actually they're very efficient companies. They don't employ as many as the big companies of old. Um, 
And so we, we've got a great guest today to walk us through some of the ins and outs of these big companies. Jonathan Taplin joins us. Jonathan is a director emeritus of the Annenberg Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California, and his areas of specialization are in international communication management and the field of digital media entertainment. He also, by the way, Taplin began his career in 1969 as a tour manager for Bob Dylan and the band. So, Jonathan, welcome to the show, man. You've had quite a history. Thank you. That's pretty neat. Um, what do you when, – when you look at these companies, uh, it's funny because we sit there and we think, well, Matt, they're making a lot of money and they're employing a lot of people. But in relation to the employers of old, they're really – they're very efficient companies, right? They don't generally have as many employees. Yeah, you think about Facebook, it's, it's uh, you know, the – fourth largest company in the world, and it employs only 19,000 people. Wow. So the wow. Ford Motor Company employs, what, 600,000 people, 700,000 yep. people? So, I mean, you know, I was struck by, as you were going to break your tagline, helping you to be the good in the world. Um, one of the things that I'm concerned about these companies, and I think a lot of your listeners probably are aware of this, is that we are addicting a whole young generation to their smartphones. Uh, I have a, a friend I know named Tristan Harris, who was an engineer at Google, and he eventually left Google because he became concerned that everything that they were doing was based on trying to addict you so that you had to check in with your phone uh, mm. Sometimes as much as uh, you know, 220 times a day, which is the average 15-year-old does. Um, there's a, a a book that's very popular in Silicon Valley right now called Hooked: How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And uh. in the book, they basically uh, describe for you uh, what you need to do. You have a trigger, and then you have an action. Uh, and then you have a reward, which is a like, and then you reinvest yourself in the in the platform. Uh, and of course, that looks very much like the the Skinner box of you know that we all studied in Psych 101, where the little rat was right. given variable rewards for by pressing a bar. Now it didn't get a reward every time it pressed the bar, so it kept pressing the bar. If it had gotten a reward every time it pressed the bar, then it would have just press the bar when it was hungry. But it doesn't know whether it's going to get a reward or not. You don't know whether you're going to, your post is going to get liked or not. And this creates an addiction cycle that, you know, when you walk down the street uh, in your town, you have to be very careful you don't run into people who are just staring at their cell phones. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the book, I tell the story of, you know, uh, kids literally falling off cliffs in uh, San Diego from not looking where they're going when they're next to the ocean, you know. Um, so I think one of the things we can do is, is try and figure out a way to take a break from these devices every once in a while. Some people are calling it a digital Sabbath. Um, for me, I went up to a Benedictine monastery in Big Sur where there was not only not cell service, there was no Wi-Fi, there was no way. So you just had no communication with the outside world, and all you had was silence, and you could read books. Yeah. And that was it. And 
the strange thing is that the first day you feel kind of anxious, by the second day you realize that it's actually good to be away from that device which you've been checking, you know, a hundred times a day. And by the third day you feel rather free and, and kind of untethered. And, and then in a sense, I think that's, that's a useful thing. I know my students always worried that, that the worst thing that could happen to them was if they lost their, their mobile phone, their smartphone. Um, but I think uh, at least trying once a week on Sunday to take the day off from social media and from the Internet is probably a good test. Right, and, and, and it, I guess it it, it also, yeah, it, it distances us maybe a little bit from the habit, but also maybe puts this thing in context where it it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be something that controls us. It's something that that we can lead. Man, when you were just talking about that, Jonathan, I'm thinking of other companies, big businesses that were kind of known for hooking people, um, whether it was tobacco industry or I mean, many would argue. Some of the food industry, they're trying to hook you with huge portion sizes, lots of salt, um, a lot of the the beverage companies. So uh, alcohol companies. I mean, it's in a way, though, th- this is a little bit almost it almost seems more innocent, except when you hear that uh, these companies are chasing down a book to help create a- addictive products. It's scary. Yeah, I mean. Let's think about it. Are we raising a, a generation who are kind of attention deficit disorder simply because that's the way they've been trained to react? I mean, for instance, when I lecture, it's sometimes very hard to get students to close their laptops hmm. or to get off of social media, just even for an hour of lecture. Um, I think it's it's something that's you know just ask your kids. If I took away your phone for a week, how would you feel? And they would go crazy. Oh yeah, they, no, no, mine would mine wouldn't have it. <laughs> like mine would say, "Dad, well, you wouldn't survive that." Yeah, it would get ugly. But it's it's true. And I mean, so how do we how do we not let these companies take over? Then Jonathan, how do I mean? Do we allow? Is it? Is it? Do we need government to take over? When we well, look at our government, we think they don't seem to take over very well. And well, here's here's the problem. There is not a market solution to this. I know that that um, you know the free market people think well. There's there's some company that's going to unseat Google in the search business. Um, right now, and we don't even know who they are, but there are five kids in a garage who are building some brilliant search engine. I would not bet on that. In fact, if you, you know, when I go around and talk, I ask people, okay, would you invest with me in a startup to try and take on Google that has 90% market share in the search business? And nobody raises their hand to say yes. Right. Because they realize that these are entrenched companies that are not going anywhere. And in fact, as you probably know from that Wall Street Journal piece I wrote last week, um, they're going to extend their reach into many other businesses. So Google will probably dominate the self-driving car business. 
It may dominate the medical information business. Amazon is extending its reach into all sorts of retail opportunities, not just food, not just grocery stores, but it's putting up, ironically, its own bookstores, having destroyed the independent bookstore in America because they, had, they didn't have to pay taxes and bookstores did. Now Amazon is going to start building bookstores. Hmm. So, I mean, these ability of these companies to move into a new business uh, and, and take all the power just the way Facebook beat up Snapchat is, is kind of ubiquitous. And so I've come to the conclusion that it may be that government regulation is the only way to think about it. Uh, I mean, ironically, the president's counselor, Steve Bannon, said last week that he thought that these companies should be regulated as public utilities. And what he meant by that was that utility is kind of something you can't do without. It's like water and electricity. Well, if you think about it, it'd be pretty hard to do without Google. Uh, and, and a lot of your children would say it be almost impossible to do without Facebook. Um, and most people think it'd be hard to do without Amazon. Mm. So um, if they are public utilities, then they should be regulated the way utilities are. In other words, the government can tell them if they're overreaching, just the way the European government did last three weeks ago. Uh, and then you want to try and foster more competition, which was what the antitrust laws were meant for. Um, we, we kind of got changed in the 80s uh, into thinking that the only thing that mattered was price. Uh, if consumer prices didn't go up after a merger, then it wasn't a problem. But under that theory, then Amazon could become the only retailer in America and could probably keep prices down the way it does in the book business. It just tells publishers, we won't sell your book unless you price it mm. at this low price. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, then you want to pay? You, you want to play? You got to pay. Man, yeah. Jonathan, interesting stuff. All of this is, uh, is in the book, um, Move Fast and Break Things, How Google, Facebook, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. Uh, really, I think it's an essential kind of uh, learning. We have all got to, to be a little bit, I think, more skeptical of these, these big companies. It's just too easy to, uh, to have the monopoly. It's too easy to, to put these demands on all of us that all of us give up our data without any of us thinking about it. I mean, it takes Europe to, to question data management of, of American companies and um, in the end, it might benefit all of us. But uh, interesting read by Jonathan Taplin, and we appreciate his time. Uh, we'll continue doing what we can to give you the information you need to make educated and informed decisions in your life. Uh, up next, we'll continue the journey as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. You know, again, um, we don't want to sound like we're, hey, you know, the, the sky is falling. The sky is falling. But the reality is these 
companies are getting huge, right? And what happens when they're not just Google's not just in management of um, of you know search engines, but and all of the data behind a search engine when ninety percent of uh, money for ad revenue is being picked up by these three companies. It's a it's a big deal, and uh, really, it's only two companies that are probably doing most of that. And what happens when Google then spends a lot of its profits and ability to then hook into your medical records? But then your medical records are then possibly searchable with their own Google medical records technology. They've already integrated Google scholars, right? So it's going to get – it's big. And, and I think it's empowering. I think it's powerful to have such great companies and big companies and we all derive such benefit from them. And um, there's a lot of information that you could get access to or don't get access to. There's a lot of marketing, ironically, that automatically pops up with a Google company the minute you search on Google. Well, then just use another provider. Sure, you can. And it doesn't make it right. So part of what the key to this is is somebody has to be pushing on the other side of this argument. And uh, I think that's all Jonathan's doing is trying to say, you know, maybe not everything that these companies do is perfect and rosy and we, we they just need a little check and balance. So everybody be informed. Caveat emptor, right? Be Buyer uh, beware. And really, get your kids uh, to lead their lives. You lead your technology use and your family's use of technology. Be This is where we need to step up and truly lead. We'll take a break. Up next, more interesting stuff to help you live longer, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. 